0: Claire Parker,
1: and I'm Ashley Hamilton,
0: and And this this is is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Memoir Book Club. Club. You guys, I'm so excited. You can't hear him, but we actually have one of our most famous guests to date. He is not a guest on the show, but he is a guest in our home. Our live studio audience. Soon to be famous TV star Dan Perlman.
1: You guys, you can catch him on Showtime
0: beginning May 23rd. Unfortunately, since he's not... A present star he was not good enough to be on the podcast as a full-time guest but if we told him if he has something very funny to say we'll pause the show and let him pick up a mic and maybe put forth his two cents and we'll see if it makes it past the cutting room floor
1: perhaps may 24th he'll be live on the podcast
0: <laughs> he can only hope part of the promotional press tour for his remember primetime showtime show <laughs> on the network showtime
1: yes it's showtime baby
0: so you're welcome dan for being here tonight <laughs> we're so excited to have you Ashley, did anything
1: happen to you this week? Well, for the Ashley Transportation Files heads out there, I spent 30 minutes waiting for a train today.
0: Ashley, you know that that's that sweet, sweet Patreon content. We're going to have to do a Patreon bonus up. You can even do those solo. I I know. I
1: wasn't going to give the whole story. I just wanted everyone to know that I spent 30 minutes waiting for a train.
0: That's insane. In this economy, in this (laughs) pandemic, (laughs) stay home, idiot. Anything else? Or is that, that the gist of it?
1: Um, I would title my memoir this week, Get Back on the Horse Dummy. I feel like I spent, you know, a lot of my adult life doing a lot of things, running around, getting a lot done. Much like a horse. A, a long day out and about. Much like out to
0: pasture. <laughs> <They> would, t- <laughs> I would say your pre-COVID life was an out to pasture horse.
1: Same. I had beautiful hair. Anyway. <laughs> Now, we've all spent a lot of time inside doing nothing. And this last week, I was doing things. I had a lot to get done for work. I had some stuff outside of work that I was doing. And I just, I felt so physically exhausted by the end of the week, having done a few things. And my God, I I mean, I need to get back on the horse of doing stuff.
0: I mean, you were there for my famous, I'm afraid I'm a whale and no longer a goat rant about how I think of myself as genetically... An extrovert but then one time i saw this exhibit at the natural history museum about how whales actually used to be goats but after the oh this the meteor hit i
1: literally erased this from my mind
0: <laughs> after the meteor hit they had to like dive out further into the water to get food and that's why whales are mammals because they're actually how did goats. they get
1: so big were goats that big the whales grew life, from the size of a baby goat not a yes yeah, if you, were, if you were ever a goat, you were a baby goat.
0: <laughs> I have to say, I stand corrected, yes. <laughs> One day, a little baby goat grew and grew and grew and grew. To a humpback whale. If you can believe it, it's true. And so I was just saying that I feel like COVID has turned the extroverted goat self into an introverted whale self. And I'm scared. I'm too far along the process of change that I can never go home. I'll never stand on land a party again but we'll My? see. I think I'll be okay.
1: God, your little goat nose has turned into a blowhole already. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to ask me anything? Yeah, Claire, what would you title this chapter of your memoir?
0: Yet again, another failure. <laughs> <laughs> As you guys know, I've been on a longstanding journey to waking up at 6am. Um, last week we had the big bump in the road where I said, what if I just go for seven? How's that going? Once again, the problems I wake up so early on Monday and excitement and often that early rising throws off my whole week and I never do it again but this week I really feel good 7 a.m. I think the sun is out I feel like you are jet lagging yourself oh sorry Dan feel free to jump on a mic and please pull up
2: I just felt you guys I felt you guys struggling so I thought you needed a friend.
0: Ah, the consummate professional on <laughs> the I, Showtime in, Zone.
2: In in an old improv you'd tag someone in and then you'd be like I'm a ghost or whatever, you know? You just kind of hop in there.
0: A supportive friend to Lena. Oh, if you guys are recognizing Dan right now from his voice, it's probably because he has had pretty well-known roles in the Who's With Tabs universe. He was milk tender on oh, oh, bitchnesses, yes. <laughs> on bitchnesses, he oh, played the bitchnesses.
2: I believe episode one. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I was the milk tender, and I remember. <laughs> can I give a backstory, please? I remember when you sent me the the script, <laughs> and you asked to confirm my availability, which was I believe six a.m. on a Sunday, and and <laughs> you sent it to me, and you were like, no rewrites, like you just have to do it as written,
0: type. like theater, <laughs>
2: like theater, yeah, and I. Yeah, you know, you like You a
0: Met play. You yeah, take yeah, what yeah. you're given and you're lucky for it.
2: <laughs> yes. And then I texted you. Uh, it was like confirming I just pour a glass of milk and you are back confirmed. And that was it. That was my oh first. Oh my
0: God, did that scene get cut?
2: No, it was in there. No, it's in my reel. It's, a, it's actually the only thing in my reel. It's on a loop. It just goes on an endless loop.
1: I don't think you're ever in focus.
2: <laughs> no, I'm not in focus. Actually, everything is in focus. The milk is in hyper focus and you actually wiped me out of frame. Isn't that weird? You put a duck over my head. It was like
0: You didn't sign the release, Dan. Didn't you didn't sign, sign the, the release. The
2: release. <laughs> we
0: sent it to your lawyer. I
2: was sent I was sent that form. You were Did having we me sign my rights away.
0: Anyone sign a release? If I was anybody in the cast of bitchnesses, I would call us and say you have to take this down. It's bad for my career.
2: No, I'm happy about it.
0: Okay, well, Dan, thank you so much. Oh, thank you
2: for having me. Yeah, I'll be over here. He'll
0: be over there. Should we get into this week's topic? Unfortunately, I guess we have to just because we bought the book. Yeah, I want to say first and foremost, I'm sorry.
1: I thought that this would be a really fun book to read. I thought it would be like a salacious Hollywood dish, which in a way... It is.
0: There's a lot of celeb name-dropping happening. A lot Not a, of celeb
1: name-dropping. Very
0: dropping. few, actually, good stories. I will say, there's one great milk story a la Bitchnesses, <laughs> and I'm excited to get to it.
1: Okay, so I want to reiterate something that I don't think I've said on the podcast yet, but I have said on other platforms. I do think there are two main types of celebrity memoirs. There is a Who I Am memoir, which was sort of Drew Barrymore, Mariah Carey. Really, they dive into their past in a way that's relevant and they really show you who they've become, how their experiences have shaped them, the ways that they've learned lessons. They talk about experiences and Hollywood shit in a way to show how it's shaped who they've become and the things they've learned. And then there are what I've done memoirs that are sort of just a collection of stories of like, this is a cool thing that happened to me. This is a cool thing that happened to me. I'm a famous person and a lot of cool things have happened to me.
0: That is a Kendra Wilkinson. That is a Steve-O. And that is a, this week's Rob Rob Lowe. Lowe. Uh-huh. Rob Lowe is what you would call a pretty face, right place. That's what I would call a a Rob Lowe career. So Rob Lowe grew up in Ohio. Classic story. Parents divorced early. His mom was rich. His dad wasn't. His dad sounds very angry and fight prone. He was great at tennis. I believe Rob Lowe claims that his dad was good at tennis before anyone else knew what it was.
1: Yes. Okay. This, I think, is a symptom of the divorce when you don't spend a lot of time with a father figure. Like, everything they do is perfect, We saw this a little bit with Mariah, even though he had a lot of flaws, she really forgave him for everything and talked about how great he was we really get a lot of positive information about Rob Lowe's dad.
0: Including that he was very quick to beat up anybody, which he's is... He's the
1: a, toughest man in Ohio.
0: He's like, to this day, I've met every actor in Hollywood. He's the most charming man. He was the smartest. He was the funniest. And he was the quickest to beat the shit out of somebody. And he was a lawyer. And it was like, I guess he had to become a lawyer because he's always beating people up. Roblo loves violence. That's one thing we learned. He loves violence. So his parents get divorced. Both people remarry. He's obsessed with acting from the young age of like 11. He sees a production of Oliver and he just wants to be a part of it. So he starts acting in local things in Ohio. His mom is kind of ahead of her time. She's like a new agey freak who's obsessed yeah. with being allergic to stuff. Her and her youngest son, she like enrolls in an allergy program in Chicago where for one whole year they have to fast on only water and then they get to eat one kind of food at a time. So I it'll don't be like- think
1: they fasted for a year.
0: But they would be like, all you could eat this week is like water and blueberries. Yeah. And then at the end of it, she comes out, she divorces her second husband and she had fallen in love with her quack doctor there. They move to Malibu. Correct. With the two boys. The dad stays in Ohio. This creates a lot of drama in the family, as you can imagine. His mom is, like, it seems like a, a depressed person who is now dating this, like, psychologist who believes in allergies. She wears, like, an oxygen mask and, like, plastic gloves to keep her away from all the plastics in the world. She mostly stays in her bedroom. She's, she like, seems a sick like person. She like
1: goes through a handful of major depressive episodes throughout his life.
0: That they blame on, like... Pollution. Plastic coming out of... The car. He
1: becomes a psychologist, the new stepfather, which is confusing to me. How you can be an allergy doctor, turn psychologist overnight? But I don't think we have time to get into that detail.
0: So he moves to Malibu, and he hooks up with this group of guys. Who are these guys? The
1: Pens and the Sheens. Emilio estevez charlie sheen sean penn and his other brother whose name i don't know they're
0: They're all all best friends they hang out every day martin sheen will show up and be like a kooky dad on a halloween and put a gun in your face and go the francis coppola ruined me yeah (laughs) um that's like a funny little neighborhood prank he is like going on auditions constantly he gets like commercials and stuff he really thinks he has a hard go of it. I believe he calls his big break on a TV show a long time coming.
1: He was 15.
0: He had been auditioning actively for three years. By actively, I mean casually on the side.
1: He also talks about how at his school, no one thought it was, like, cool that he wanted to be an actor.
0: So he talks about Malibu.
1: He starts auditioning. He gets a role on a TV show. The TV show gets canceled pretty quickly, not before he meets Janet Jackson. He name drops pretty much everyone he possibly can in this book. I don't think he actually had any interaction with Dean Cain, but he, like, talks about how he ran track against him once and Dean Kane was fast like Superman and then became Superman. It's like, okay, cool.
0: Eventually, he's about to go to college and he gets his big break role, he gets the Outsiders, which is yes. being shot once again by Francis Coppola. It's this huge experience. I mean, every hot young thing in Hollywood is going out for these roles. He's up against Tom Cruise. He's up against Mickey Rourke. He's up against...
1: Emilio Estevez is there. Patrick Swayze. Dennis Quaid is at the audition.
0: Scott Bayo. Everybody famous is at these auditions. Somehow he gets the role of Soda Pop, which is like one of the most coveted roles after Pony Boy. Nobody can believe, including him, that he got it. And wouldn't you believe it after like some grueling Francis Coppola old school Hollywood Hollywood, kind of like, we're going to let some boys down the street beat you up so you get the real experience type of filming. He goes and sees the movie, and he's been almost completely edited out of it.
1: It begs the question, was the storyline from the original best-selling book just not good enough, or was... He's so bad at acting that they had to re-edit the entire movie.
0: He's written out. But this does catapult him into, like, hot young It-boy. He
1: is also friends with all the other hot young It-boys. They all bonded deeply on the set of The Outsiders. They are really a crew. And also, he grew up with Emilio Estevez, so they sort of remained a crew.
0: Yeah, and then he does two more movies that year, both of them bomb. So everything he does bombs. He keeps being in, like, bombs. By the time he is, like, 24, he's a real party animal. He dates Princess Stephanie of Monaco, He's, like, blackout all the time. He was in St. Elmo's Fire, which I guess was a commercial success. Yeah. He becomes part of the Brat Pack famously. He's partying. He gets very involved in politics. Yeah. He, like, campaigns with the Democratic candidate whose name is... Dukakis. At the Democratic National Convention. He does have sex with a 16-year-old on camera. That comes out later. He doesn't seem that sorry about it. He tries to do this movie... He meets his future wife, who's a makeup artist on it. They have like this incredible whirlwind romance. And then, as soon as she leaves his side, he gets blackout and has sex with somebody and cheats on her and she finds out. So then the next day, this is his rock bottom. Yes, he decides to get sober. He goes to rehab, the Harvard of rehabs, down in Arizona. He comes back sober. He starts taking movies and doesn't care if they bomb, which they do. So, good thing. He marries his wife, and he does SNL, I guess, to rehab his image because back in the day, you could take a sex tape of a six-year-old girl and, like, survive it with an SNL appearance, which is so cool about Lauren.
1: If you did good on SNL.
0: He does good on SNL. This kind of launches him as a comedic star. He's in Wayne's Wayne's World. World. He's in Austin Powers. Tommy Boy. And then, of course, he gets... The West Wing. Which really helps his career. It seems like he's written out of that, too. Dan... Can you hop on, Mike, please? Did you ever watch Westworld? The West Wing. Yeah, West.
2: <laughs> I've seen every episode.
0: Have you really? I have, yes. Is that why you're where you are and I'm not where I am? Because I didn't study the greats. Uh, the,
2: greats. <laughs> the greats. I,
0: I think Aaron yeah. Sorkin is highly reviewed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No,
2: I actually, I actually loved, I actually loved his seasons of that show. I did.
0: Can Wait. I say something about Aaron Sorkin? Which his Aaron Sorkin or
2: they coincided actually.
0: Ra- when did Aaron Sorkin leave? I thought it was his show. I think
2: they're both there the first four seasons.
1: Yeah. Mm. Can I say something now about Aaron Sorkin? Yeah. yeah. He was my commencement speaker when I graduated college. Mm. You should ask him for a job.
2: I've listened, Good idea. I've listened to him talk in interviews. It's like never helpful. It's very um, like smarmy, and it's ne- like never particularly helpful.
1: Well, the advice that he gave us as a graduating class is that if we want to be writers, we don't need cocaine to write.
2: Yeah. Which, honestly,
1: Dan, in your experience, true or false?
2: It's, it's false. I need it, <laughs> I I will need it say, every day.
1: In my personal experience as a professional in any job, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Adderall has been really helpful for me. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's like, like Yeah, like pills are definitely like helpful in some form, whatever it is.
0: Find pills if you can. But um, Dan, was Rob Lowe good in it?
2: He was good in it, but I guess he wasn't that like important.
0: Well, he's saying that was a choice that they made. Yes. To
2: not use him that much. That
0: he, they actually give the whole rundown of his West Wing experience.
1: I mean, basically that he was brought on to be like a star and then... Yeah. Um, And then they just barely used him. And he felt very underused and would like pretty regularly ask for more story to work with. And they just said no every time. It reminds me a lot of...
0: Wait, can you go more into detail about how he like went down a hall one day and the PA was blocking the door and it turned out everybody in the room but him from the cast was getting their photos taken for Emmy magazine. Yes. And that it turned out the entire cast banded together without him to ask for raises and they never told him they were getting raises.
1: They did tell him they were getting raises after they got them.
2: But I think he was already, like, making more than them. I think, I think my awareness of it was, like, he was, like, ju- it's, like, yeah, they, like, didn't use him that much. And I think he, also, like, they thought he'd be the star, but then, like, they got Martin Sheen, who's, like, yeah. better. Who's yeah. his
1: childhood friend?
2: Martin Sheen or Charlie Sheen? Well,
1: Martin but, Sheen was the dad of Charlie oh, Sheen. So was he, the was of, oh, he was always hanging out at Charlie Sheen. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. House, And Martin yeah. Sheen like, was, like, really good in that show. Yeah, like won a bunch of awards and stuff. So Martin Sheen,
1: he says, they actually originally brought in to be just sort of like a celeb cameo. They weren't going to have him really really be a part of the show.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think, yeah, I remember seeing one scene or hearing some, it might have even been Sorkin saying this, that there was like a scene in it and like Rob Lowe acts really like angry in the scene or he's like really short and he's talking even quicker than... Like, he's just, like, trying to get through it because he's so mad and he just wants to storm off set that day. And that was because, like, they told him right before, like, we're actually cutting... Your next three scenes to save time and money or whatever. So he was just blah, 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 and Sark so was like, but that actually works because I like when people talk quick. <laughs> <That> <laughs> he was really mad and talking real quick, and I was just like, but yeah. So even when he was like furious and trying to sabotage it, it like okay. was helpful. I do think thing. it's
0: because he might be a bad actor. So like his the opposite of he does a whole mm. thing in yeah. this book about how some people will say going to Juilliard or taking acting classes or studying is good, but he actually thinks it's better to not have any preparation. And he says going with your gut confidently is more important than any prep, character work, yeah. or studying. And he goes, it's not fair because it's not respected in the same way, but it's actually, in my opinion, much better way of acting.
2: Yeah. The Every- lazier way. Yeah, everyone seems to think that like what they do is the best, the best way to do it. You know I don't know I mean? why
0: this shortcut I take <laughs> <laughs> isn't respected like the people who try hard.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean... I can only speak as experience of someone who has zero training and doesn't know what they're doing. Damn, would, but
0: you're a TV star.
2: It would definitely be nice to know what I'm doing a little more, you know? Well, have you thought
0: about <laughs> confidently going with your gut?
2: No, I haven't. I've heard that's
0: almost better. Do you know, um,
1: <laughs> at one point... Um Rob Lowe actually tells us and I actually asked a guy I'm seeing who is trying to become an actor. He Whoa. Rob Lowe writes an actor's worst fear is not being able to cry on cue. And I want to ask you in your experience now acting. Yes, yes, yes. Is that your worst fear?
2: Mm no.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay.
2: But I will say I don't think I could do it. <laughs> but I fear other things more. I know I couldn't do it, and I don't fear. I, mean, I don't on. fear failure. <laughs> I've accepted that I would fail in that respect and moved on to other things. Well, in I'm my sure head. it's
0: helpful when you're the head writer of the show you're on. You just don't write crying
2: scenes. You write around that. Yes.
0: <laughs> I yeah. asked
1: um, this guy if, if not being able to cry on cue was his worst fear, and he said Rob Lowe does TV and movie acting. They
0: make drops.
2: That's true. They do. They said it's fake-
0: very easy to fake crying. And I, I thought, good point. Some celebrity was like the best trick in the book is you just use your own spit.
1: Ew. Imagine how much spit you had to wad up and shove in your eye to get a good...
0: Teardrop but throwing. great great actors are spitty and that's one of the big things about Broadway. Mm-hmm.
2: That's true. They that like an honor,
0: a great honor is to sit in the front row and be spat all over.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, Ugh. by Nathan Lane or something. Mm-hmm. Yes, people collect Nathan Lane's spit. Do you
0: know what? Can I say this
1: is why I'm not a theater person? That sounds unsanitary. Especially, that's can true. I Do you know what? I wonder if COVID will change Broadway acting forever.
2: <laughs> yes, people will only be sitting in the balcony, just like way the far away. The cheap
1: seats are going to be the front row because it's if you're sitting in the front row, you're like putting yourself at risk.
2: Can you cry on command? Can either of you guys?
1: I can't even cry when I'm sad. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, that's not true.
0: I've, as someone who's made you cry, you I take cry that back before I'm I come at you. Upset.
1: I cry when no, I'm upset. I cry when I'm frustrated, and I cry when I'm mad. I don't really cry when I'm sad. You're such
0: a liar. You're just so detached from your own true emotions that you just have started labeling sadness as other things.
1: Okay. Maybe.
0: <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> Whoa. That was a fun exchange. Can you, Claire?
0: Can I cry? I think if you give me five minutes. Huh. But it does take preparation. I can't just go with my gut.
2: Yeah, there's something like, almost like scary about the ability to do that.
0: So back to Rob Lowe, just to wrap up this goddamn idiotic story of a life of a man who just is in things that do pretty bad, but sometimes do good by accident in spite of him. He's still married to his wife. They have two beautiful kids.
1: The end is just him getting Parks and Rec and doing a handful of other projects that he's proud of, and he's grateful for the opportunities and the life he's led.
0: So now we can get back to the beginning and really go through why Rob Lowe is one of the worst people.
1: Yes, I want to preface this chunk by saying he opens this book with an introduction where he says, the purpose of this book is a piece of entertainment first and foremost with a quick pace, some humor, and as the title implies, anecdotes of extraordinary moments I have had the good fortune to experience. And I want to discuss how this book accomplishes these things, if at all.
0: I would say he doesn't. But- I would say
1: he does tell us anecdotes. I do not think the pace was quick.
0: This is one of the hardest books I've ever had to read. I'm a pretty fast reader, and this book took me a really long time to the point where I couldn't even finish the last four pages because we were so late on recording.
1: It was very similar to Steve-O's book. It's just like that chunky anecdote-only way of writing.
0: And the thing about anecdotes is they're so laden with proper nouns that it's hard to kind of get into the groove and read through because it's so person, time, location, detail-oriented. And there's like no true emotion or vibe. It's a lot of first and last names.
1: He also has a way of writing where he like leads with like a passive voice.
0: It's raining on the beach. My mom's coming home from work. I guess his mom never had a job, so that would not be the sentence.
1: But it's all, there's a lot of exposition before he gets to the meat of the paragraph or the sentence every single time. And I want to point out that every time he mentions one of these celebrities that he name drops, which he name drops A lot. Mm -hmm. He mentions them at the end of the story. It's always like, you know, that like sort of image of like a old dude smoking a cigar on the patio and he like tells like a 45 minute story and the end of it is like, and that's how I met
0: your mother. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's literally the entire series of How I Met Your Mother with every single story. He always gives I the full story first. Like, he talks about meeting a girl with crazy blonde curls and having lunch with her. And at the end, he's like, Sarah Jessica Parker and I were both at the Emmys one year. If you had said Sarah Jessica Parker at the beginning, it would have given it an extraordinary context for this story. But instead, we had to, like, muddle through the whole thing. And then at the end, be like, oh, the curly haired girl
0: is Sarah Jessica fucking Parker. I know what she looks like already. He makes everything as long as possible. So like an example of how he writes is underneath the glorious exuberance of the counterculture ethos, the fantastical weather and dreamlike beauty, Malibu's malignant undercurrents were a hidden danger to adults as well. Like that is a long run on. I call it thesaurus writing where you're like, okay, he wrote a sentence and then he went through and thesaurus each word. Yes,
1: and did not once read it back.
0: The greatest professor I ever had in college, he would always say, clear writing is the best word. The shortest word is the best word. The word that means the thing you need to say, like that's what you should use. This writing where you just like go through... Underneath the glorious exuberance of the counterculture ethos. What the fuck are you talking what about? What does that mean? There's the sentence where he talks about having sex with uh, Cheryl, his wife, or they're like leaning back in Fiji. And he talks about looking up at the nebula. And I'm like, what are you saying right now? It's so insane. It's so convoluted. It's so overwritten. He says he wants this to be like a quick, fun read. Every sentence has about eight clauses in it that say the same thing. You'll be like, when you're pursue your dreams and look into your heart and find what you want to do and, and ex- run for the goal <laughs> Explore your passions. And and you're just like 17 sentences, like a full plate of chili. And you're just like, okay, well, you've truly been very redundant. It's terribly edited. It's not a well edited, well written book. And that's the problem is these are cool stories. I guess there is a lot of name dropping. This could yes. have been a fun, cool, breezy book, but instead of being like, let me tell you about the time I met Sarah Jessica Parker. I
1: do think that even if it was written concisely, it would have been a bit grating. My theory about this book is that He does have a lot of really cool stories. He has met a lot of really cool people. He's been adjacent to a lot of really interesting things, and he's been in a lot of interesting things. I think that at parties, he probably has incredible stories to tell, and when you hear two of them every six months, you're like, my
0: God, Rob has the best stories. And then reading them all back to back, it's like, shut the fuck up, Rob. They're deeply misogynistic. They're poorly written. They come from a viewpoint... Of somebody... I mean, it's unbelievable. This book was written when?
1: Um, I think it was 2013.
0: But it's just amazing how it's so, like, before or after the Me Too movement. He talks about meeting with Roman Polanski, Mm -hmm. and the way he describes it is...
1: I mean, he only talks about him in the highest regard. He does not, for one second, talk about a sex scandal, talk about, like, any trepidation to meet with a sex offender, because he himself is also a sex offender. (laughs)
0: I mean, he talks about trying out for this film with Roman Polanski. He's in Paris. They go to a dinner afterwards where it's him, Roman, a couple of guys, and just like a table full of models. And he says, Roman has taken good care of me, placing me between a fantastic redhead and a breathtaking blonde. So he goes up to Roman and says, thanks so much for letting me audition. And Roman says, may I give you some advice? And then he goes, you better make up your mind or you will end up jerking off. I take the master's advice and spend my first night in the City of Lights in a romantic, impulsive, and too brief encounter that probably wouldn't have happened but for Roman. Thank you, Mr. Polanski. Viva la France. I mean, at this point, it's well known he raped a 12-year-old. And he's in France because he can't leave France because he raped a 12-year-old. Yes. It's, I mean, like,
1: very well known.
0: 2013, I mean... And then to sit there and thank Roman Polanski for, like, setting you up with essentially unpaid hookers. Sex work is work.
1: So this is something that happens, but that that's too timelines that we should point out is this is something that occurs after Roman Polanski has been relegated to France because he cannot come back to the United States because he's a fugitive. And he wrote and like regurgitated this story at least like in the early 2010s and thought it was a good idea to include. So like not only did he think it was okay when it happened, but he like continued being like, yes, normal to idolize Roman Polanski and to be excited that he handed me some babes.
0: I mean, after he himself had been under fire which is literally what it was under fire for having a sex tape with an underage girl that was released so this is coming from a man who has gotten in a lot of trouble for basically having sex with a minor and videotaping it having Mm -hmm. underage child porn and then also in 2012 not in the book but according to the wikipedia page he was charged by two different nannies for sexual assault
1: so i want to talk about the way he talks about women throughout this book It's really gross. So when he describes his first girlfriend, a China blue-eyed blonde with a rosebud mouth. When he describes a woman that he competes on a game show with. So he's competing with one girl and then Tony Danza is competing with another girl. And he says, we easily beat Danza and his little minx partner. When he's introducing Demi Moore, he says, a girl in a see-through sundress backlit revealing a gorgeous body. I mean, there are so many. Introducing his own wife, he says, striding towards me on outrageously long legs is a sexy and big-spirited blonde girl.
0: I mean, the entire story, like, the great thing about being famous... Is that you can just walk outside, point to a woman, and bring her back, and have sex with her? And That's he a, does
1: that several times. I mean, one
0: of the things he, <laughs> he talks, talks about, about doing it all the time all the time. he's always reducing women to how sexy they are. He's always like, he, one of the craziest things to me is he talks about the night that the Brat Pack article was written in The New Yorkers.
1: Wait, I want to get to that in one second. I think that there is only one woman throughout this entire book until his wife, who he develops a respect for. Mm-hmm. Before he meets his wife, I think the only woman that he doesn't describe exclusively by her body is Jodie Foster. And I think that that's because Jodie Foster
0: is gay. I mean, even Jane Fonda, he describes first and foremost as sexy. And when he talks about meeting her and her husband and following them into their kind of their political gauntlet, he says the husband was the brain's. And Jane was the celebrity and passion. And I was like, I don't know. I think Jane Fonda is also pretty smart to say that she's not the brains.
1: So when Emilio Estevez is being interviewed for a New York Magazine article and he wants to show the writer that he's really fun, so he invites the Brat Pack guys out. It's like Judd Nelson, Rob Lowe. And then he says... A number of fun girls are invited in case the writer is single,
0: and then he cannot believe to this day that that writer would go out and see them as entitled, gross party animals. Yeah, he's like, can you believe he wrote that about us? We and bought him dinner, and, and it's there's like, no self reflection that's like, yeah, looking back at the time, it was pretty gross that the tw- a bunch of 23 year old guys like just partied all the time.
1: He also says at one point, I'd taken to using MTV as sort of a home shopping network. Like, he would see girls in music videos and then like call agents to say that girl who was in that Sting music video, can I get her number? And then he would just bang those girls and then leave them out to dry. And I think it's especially interesting considering this quote where he says, I didn't really know I was being treated like an object. I did, however, begin to treat some people the way they treated me. And he has no reflection. He never apologizes for the lack of respect he has for women throughout the entire book.
0: He is obsessed with blue-eyed blondes. He brings it up a hundred million times. Even that first ever TV show he was on, that he was 15 and it ends up, getting canceled pretty quickly. But he talks about how the two producers whose asses really were on the line because it was their first show. He was like, the two producers were there because they were married to big-time movie producers. And I was like, what a a discrediting thing to say about two adult women who... We're doing their job when you were just some 15-year-old idiot they plucked off the street and gave credit to you for the first time in your life. You never had a good job before and they finally gave you one and you're going to disrespect them by not even naming them, just basically implying that they were only there because of who they were married to. It's disgusting. This is the 70s. I
1: mean, he eventually talks about how his wife is like very good at her job. Yeah. But he also says he first met his wife, he was set up with her on a blind date when they were very young and then they remet because she was hired to work as a makeup artist on a movie he was doing. And he says that when they first met, they went on that first date, and she said that she was trying to become a makeup artist, and he said he never took her seriously.
0: I mean, he doesn't respect women, and it's funny because, as you said, the entire book, he's feeling very sorry for himself for being objectified. And he's like, look, I see the publicity as part of the job, and it's great when people connect with you on your acting or say, your role really inspired me. But he's like, when they're just looking at you because you're famous or they're just looking at you because you're hot, it feels bad. Meanwhile, look at this blue-eyed, blonde-haired vixen coming towards me. Everybody's a vixen. The way he describes the older women as, like, sex roles, for him to, like, not look back and give these people their due, every single woman he ever worked with, because he was in very few good movies, are always these, like, sex pot kind of Mrs. Robinson roles. Yeah. And he's always like, we needed a real hot, sexy older woman. This woman was a real vixen. This woman had a real sultry vibe. He's so disrespectful. I don't think there's a woman on the planet, except for Jodie Foster, that he... Appreciates and the other thing Jody Foster did, yes, was he says Jodie Foster was the only person who reached out to him during his little scandal. He doesn't even refer to it as a scandal, he just refers it to it as like a, the a bad
1: time he went through.
0: Which is when he was getting in trouble nationally. Not even trouble. I mean literally they he put He was him
1: getting on- called out nationally. There was no consequences, but he was called out.
0: I think it was more the sex tape than even the underage girl. And then he just went on SNL and he revived his whole image. It was not a problem. I looked it up online and basically
1: she was 16 years old and he was in his 20s and I guess the age of consent in Georgia at the time and this happened in Atlanta was 14. Yeah. But to be videotaped was 18 and there was no backlash about that.
0: So the irony of this whole thing is that he's in a movie at the time called Bad Influence which is about somebody using film sex as blackmail. So that's of course like the horrible irony of when this comes out. And it
1: overshadows the release of this movie because...
0: Although he does say James Spader who's also in it and the other stars who's also in it are able to keep climbing in their career, that this doesn't slow them down. He's like, it only slowed me down. And I'm like, well, only you had sex with a minor. So, (laughs) but he says at this time in his life, handheld cameras were this huge new thing and he was recording everything in his life. So I know it was his idea to record it, not hers. For sure.
1: I also want to say that every time he had a movie that flopped majorly, It was someone else's fault. And he has an elaborate explanation for every single thing. Like this movie flopped because it was overshadowed by the sex tape. He has other movies that flopped because they got rewritten or renamed or re-something. Or like one time he has a movie that flopped because it was not promoted well because the studio was mid-sale. And like in that transition of power, their movie just kind of didn't get the attention it deserved from the studio. And it's like, yes, I'm sure that there's a reason for every single thing you've done to have eaten shit.
0: (laughs) Meanwhile, his contemporaries... Uh, Charlie Sheen, who got a role that he passed up, seems to go on to huge stardom. Tom Cruise. Tom. I mean, they both left The Outsiders. Rob Lowe did a movie called Class, and then Tom Cruise did Risky Business. He was like, Risky Business, it could have been good or not. And I'm like, well, I guess it turned out pretty good. Ashley, here's my discussion question for you from the Rob Lowe book. Would you say that he takes acting more seriously than any other job in the world? I would say...
1: Yes. He does think acting is harder and more important than anything else that anyone could literally ever do. And he gives examples.
0: Can you support your thesis with the evidence from the book?
1: Why Claire? Yes, I can. Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> so one quote I want to pull in comparison of acting versus athletes. This is after his first role. He's 15 years old, starring on a TV show. And then he has to go back to the 10th grade. He says, if you think star athletes have a tough reentry when they retire, try going from endless free donuts, screaming girls in a starring role on television to 10th grade driver ed. Can I just say, I actually think retiring as an athlete is harder.
0: Also, he didn't retire. He was 15. He got a show that didn't pan out. And by 18, he was in the Outsiders.
1: Yeah, but it was really hard for him. So this is a quote that I think is important regarding the conversation about Tom Cruise and all of the other actors around him post-Outsiders picking good roles. He says, many people still buy into the idea that actors can control and plan their careers. Even the biggest star is at the mercy of the material offered to him. So I actually think that you can tell a good script from a bad script, but Rob Lowe cannot.
0: I agree with that.
1: He kind of brings this up a handful of times the way that like being an actor is the hardest thing of all because all you can control is your performance and literally nothing else. But like I um, disagree. Pretty Well then it's
0: interesting because at the very beginning of the book he talks about his first experience with a TV show and the star of that show and how she can kind of seem like a demanding diva because every every day she makes the writers come in and have a writer's meeting about the script. And he's like, this could seem like diva behavior, but actually when you're in the industry, you understand that if a show goes down, it goes down with the name of the actor and the actor takes the blame. So if you know a script is bad, it's on you to make sure it's the best it can be. You know what works for you. And this is actually a really good lesson. And then meanwhile, he's like... I had no say. I couldn't have done anything.
1: But that's the thing, is he talks a lot about how actors know what works and what doesn't. So when a writer won't listen to him, it's like really dumb of them to not listen to the actor because like they know. And again, I vehemently disagree with that. Like I do see how an actor, when saying a line out loud, could say, you know what, out loud, this doesn't quite Ring, And I think it would feel more natural for my character to say X, Y, Z. But there's a reason there are writers and there are actors. And I think some people are writers slash actors.
0: But... Dan! Dan! Uh, Unfortunately, he's off taking a business call. I'd love to hear his input on being a writer slash actor.
1: Oh, wait. He's back. Oh, (laughs) my God. Dan, Dan, Dan. I actually have the quote that we were referencing. And I'd like Dan's writer slash actor opinion on it. Well, here's one. So in the context of this, he's talking about how... Basically, if a writer won't listen to the actor in terms of what works. He said, most actors are very good judges of what works, and yet they are always at the mercy of writers or producers. I've learned an actor who has made it to a certain level knows what works for him or her better than anyone else.
2: Can I say what, I've, what I have honestly think? That Please.
1: That's why we literally called you in, Dan.
2: Actors are such fucking babies.
1: Yes. I agree with that. Do you agree with this? I like, especially from reading this, I like literally can't believe what a friendless nerd this dweeb is.
2: I just think like, it's like, I mean, I'm like, I see some actors who are like so incredibly good and they're like incredibly impressive, but then anything short of that, it's usually someone who's just being like the biggest baby in the world about like something incredibly small and and taking it, like, way, which I guess, honestly, like, we see, you know, we see with comics all the time mm-hmm. of it's somebody who's, like, taking this thing, like, incredibly seriously and thinking that what they're doing is, like, really important. And then you look at them on stage and it's just, like, fucking nonsense. It's just, like, true garbage. Right. It's always, it's, like, they're they're, like, they're telling the truth up there. And the truth seems to be, like, them finding, like you know, like Puerto Rican steel, like it's some like crazy stereotype that, you know what I mean? So he
1: talks quite a bit about how he thinks that actors are like the pinnacle of existence and everyone around them has it easy. Here's another uh, quote that I'd like to pull. It's about a film that was like rewritten a handful of times. It was reworked a bunch in production. And then the final piece was an absolute flop. And he writes, The original writers took their names off of it, but stars have no such luxury, no way to avoid the fallout, and that is one of the reasons they get and deserve the big
2: bucks. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's just so crazy. It's like the ego, and I guess you see this also, it's just like the ego that every single person involved has that thinks like their point of view is like the only one that should matter. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's what
0: we literally had that... He's, like, never had another job, but he's, like, no other job is, like, what we have. I mean, read the next quote. Which one? About how actors are different than other people because they end up bonding over their shared experience of being actors. He says, we support, he
1: says, we are one another's support and sounding board. We aren't looking for some sort of actor's club or to be cool. We just want to be around people who are dealing with the same new mysterious frustrating issues. And it's, like, yeah, welcome to literally any career. Watch any, like... (laughs) Like, you work in finance, like... Barely. I'm the receptionist. Right, right. But, like... But (laughs) But I'm friends with them, because we all talk about... Is that even the career? Yes, but, like, the way that, like, new analysts, like, the people coming in at the ground level who, like, are all working together in, like, the trenches having to work until, like, 2 a.m., like, they really bond with each other because they are dealing with the same frustrating issues. I mean, I bond with them because we go to the same bathroom. And so you're just
0: chatting because you see each other.
2: A lot of times... I just think he
0: has no concept
1: that other industries exist and do things
2: a lot of times like my 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 grandpa was in korea but he didn't like bond with anybody in his platoon because like none of them were actors (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) so they had nothing to talk about (laughs) like the idea that it's like oh they can take their name off it if the thing is bad or whatever it's just the thing where it's like yeah but when the thing is good everyone thinks they just like made it up yeah you know what i mean like the best movies or whatever. Some of the movies, uh, obviously, you know who directed it or whatever. But a lot of them you even don't. Mm-hmm. A lot of our great movies, like you don't even remember who directed the thing. Yeah. You just remember it's like, oh, this famous person was in it or that famous person.
0: Totally. And then everyone
2: thinks they like made it up, you know? Yeah.
0: And you know what? My <laughs> mom
2: will watch John Oliver and be like, I don't know, even know how he comes up with that stuff off the top of his, all this like hard data. She thinks, everyone thinks he's just winging, like you there know? there are
0: writers who
1: are begging <laughs> to have their names more front and center, so. Right.
2: <laughs>
0: um Roblo and you still have a ton of money even though you seem to have bombed everything you still like walked away with a livelihood that did you did pretty well
2: yeah I think there's just like maybe no way to talk about because then like a lot of people are like just like really really good but then I just think I think there's like it's like maybe like really hard to talk about like any kind of craft that you love and any kind of like reverence or whatever and not just come off like just like incredibly annoying.
0: But the other thing is, as we've said, is he doesn't have any reverence for it. As he says, he goes, I think studying and learning.
2: Right. He has contempt for it. stupid. Right. What you
0: should do is just be confident and go with your gut.
2: Right. Which is what
0: I do. He goes, I never studied. He's like, I studied the better way on camera. His first ever. So he got this, that thing when he was 15, he was on a TV show when he was 15. It lasted six episodes and he got canceled. His next job was the Outsiders. And he says that it's the he's like glad he didn't have any training because no right. training could have been as good as Francis Coppola as a director.
2: Well, right. then, that, then that's a really annoying personality because then we know that with comics also where the thing of like, I never write, I just kind of get up there. And they, they sort of have contempt for like trying or yes. like the, any work that goes into it. They sort of loathe that because they don't want to do it. So they have full contempt for it. And that's kind of what that energy he's bringing to it. And yeah. that, I think that's the, the baby part. That's the annoying part to me.
0: But he's not like the genius. You know what I mean? He's not no. Gerard Ca- Carmichael showing up and winging his audition for JFL. Sure, sure, sure. He then continues to bomb everything. I mean, he literally the only good movie he's in is The Outsiders. And Francis Coppola completely cut him out of the entire movie in editing. Yeah,
1: and there's other movies that, are, that did okay, like St. Elmo's Fire, but that was an ensemble cast and it didn't perform well with critics. I mean, that other movie, About Last Night, with Demi Moore, I think did pretty well. I think people really liked it, but... Again, I just don't think that he has the acting credentials. Like, obviously, he's been in a lot of things, but I don't think that there are that many people who've ever been like, Rob Lowe's acting is tremendous. I think that he kept, as you said, failing up because he's hot. Like, he was so hot. And he was there. He was hot and he was there, but I think a lot of people are there. I think if he was, like, a goofy-looking character actor, they would have found someone else goofy-looking when he was in his sitcom that never lasted when he was 15 years old and with that he became a teenage heartthrob even though he right. says that he didn't have material he barely had lines he was just yeah. the he was like the fourth brother family. Yeah, i didn't even family, know what he
2: was famous for but yeah. he was
1: so hot that teenage girls went fucking bananas sure and then in the outsiders he was basically cut out of the movie but he was just mobbed afterwards because he was this hot teenager that all the girls wanted to bang and so the fact that he just was sexy and on screen at some point he like kept getting recognized and kept getting more attention whereas if he had been less hot no one would have noticed he was in any of these things
2: well he wouldn't he wouldn't have he wouldn't have been in any in the first place
1: yeah he wouldn't have been in them in the first place but even if he
2: had which is which is not also is not bad that's just how it works it there should it should be that's who should be in a million things someone who is very attractive and handsome and you want to you know what i mean like i get it
0: can you ask me a discussion topic
1: claire how does history and say some international headlines how did those affect roblo's life
0: well before even the headlines i want to get to just his obsession with being a history buff Oh, yeah. He is the kind of white guy who's obsessed with history and that he'll, like, know the name of the Lysitania or whatever and then how many people went down with it. He's really obsessed with knowing what president's desks were made out of. Oh, he
1: loves knowing president's desks are made out of. Like, this
0: wood was taken from a wreckage off the coast of Japan. And it's just like, yeah, that's history. That's a real cute eye for things. And... I think he's pretty insecure about not having gone to college. He name drops that he got into both the USC and UCLA. And he just had to rack his brain to pick which one. But to seem smart, in addition to writing like overly convoluted sentences, he's constantly dropping these weird little like historical name drops into his book. And so I just want to quickly highlight a couple of my favorite. He says at the beginning that there was an experience where a time in school there was this custody battle happening with a rock star's son. And so the teacher had to hide the kid in a closet <laughs> for a minute while his mom was like looking for him because she wanted to kind of kidnap him custody battle-wise. And he says the kid had been Anne Franked, <laughs> which is a beautiful a beautiful comparison. Later when he gets his first ever script, he compares it to holding the Magna Carta itself. He talks about not being able to remember his mom's second divorce. And he talks about how it's similar to the 20 minutes of missing footage from the Watergate tapes. And then, my all time favorite name drop is he talks about after the outsiders, he's doing press and nobody's there to help him. He doesn't know how to navigate the situation. They're asking him tough questions. Nobody tells him you're allowed to say no. So he tries to answer everything. And he goes, and I answered questions that would have made de Tocqueville seem like a lightweight. De Tocqueville is a famous French philosopher. I couldn't even pronounce that word in the book. It's spelled with it. Say it again de Tocqueville. It's not with a T. Alexis de, well it's de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right honestly, but I do know he wrote Democracy in America, which was his like philosophical like political science review of the United States and he is a highly regarded political scientist and historically and I just do not believe that anything that Rob Lowe was asked after The Outsiders would have made de Tocqueville seem like a lightweight.
1: I agree with that. I don't think that would be possible. I also think it's a very interesting sort of male thing that we've noticed.
0: Where they can't determine a good story from a bad story, so they just tell you every story? Like, they really think every expedition is important?
1: Actually, once again, to bring up my ex... (laughs) I think that there is like this weird belief in men without dads that would have had this intense guidance otherwise. Yeah. Because my ex, used to always be like, if I had a dad, I would like understand what to do next. And I was like, no, literally all adults face decisions that they don't know the answer to. And there's no one that can make that decision for you. That's just like part of being a person. And he like really thought it was the absence of having a father. And I think that Rob Lowe exhibits this. In a lot of places, he always talks about how no one was looking out for him. No one was telling him what to do. No one was helping him. And that it, it's just like hard to navigate Hollywood on your own. Which
0: I agree, but I don't think your lawyer dad would have known either.
1: But I don't think his lawyer dad would have known. I don't think anyone would have known. I don't understand who. I think it's because like men can't admit that they're indecisive or that they have trouble with stuff. And so they have to like be like, no one was telling me. And that is hard that I didn't have that guidance. And it's like, wh- where would that guidance have come from? hmm like where? What do you? What do you mean? Like who should have been guiding you through interviews? What are you talking about?
0: Yeah, I don't know. He's such a an idiot. Should we get into the other way he thinks history has? <sighs> I would say history has impacted his life, but really it's the way his life has impacted history.
1: Okay, so let's get into the rest of the history as it affects Roblo's book, or as the way Rablo affects history, I suppose.
0: So, the book opens the first chapter. The first time you're meeting Rob Lowe, it's his famous two pages of exposition telling you about this person he met, telling you about who he is and what he's done without telling you who he is or what he's done, really. And who is he? JFK Jr.
1: It turns out he and JFK Jr. met at like a charity event and bonded over being pussy slayers.
0: <laughs> and then they met a few years later. JFK Jr. was dating Carolyn Bassett. Rob Lowe had already gotten married to his wife, Cheryl, at that point. JFK Jr. goes, how'd you do it? How'd you settle down? And Rob Lowe gives him some advice. Like, if she's your best friend, just frickin' marry her. And he goes, next thing you know, they were married. And it's like, I don't think that JFK Jr. married
1: Carolyn Bessette because of
0: Rob Lowe's advice, but good try. And then he goes on to talk about how he ended up being on the cover of JFK Jr.'s, I mean, No Ill Will Towards the Dead, but horribly conceived. George Magazine. <laughs> And so Roblo was supposed to be on the cover. It was the last decision any uh, JFK Jr. makes. And he's like, all right, see you next week. JFK Jr. gets on a plane and dies.
1: Yeah, he sees it as deeply connected to him. Let's go through some of the other events that are deeply
0: connected. <laughs> it's one thing to have an event that you're going to connect yourself. It's another thing to give the first chapter of your memoir about your life to JFK Jr. Because you met him three times.
1: Yeah, and in those three times, you, one, introduced him to how to get chicks. Two, <laughs> introduced him to how to get a wife. Three, killed him.
0: <laughs> Roblo is God.
1: He also talks about how he procrastinated on sending a letter to JFK K junior about something and now he never will. And it's like, Okay, maybe if he'd gotten that letter, he wouldn't have gotten on the plane that, like, what are you talking (laughs) about, dude? Next, he met LeVar Burton the week before Roots came out, and that, like, cultural sensation affected him in a lot of ways. Okay, so he also uh, was on this, when he was younger, his uncle was very involved with the making of the original Star Wars and brought Rob Lowe to that Valley Warehouse where they had the Death Star. Like, they were literally, like, reinventing filmmaking And Rob Lowe happened to be there. That film was Star Wars.
0: Oh, he talks about how he was on some terrible movie. Another one of his big bombs. I actually think it was like that big bomb that sent him into having to work in politics. And he was like, the writer of it said, if this doesn't go good, I'm writing for TV from now on. And he goes, that writer was Dick Wolf. And I'm happy to have pushed him into TV because he created Law and Order. And I'm like, I mean, truly failing up, failing with ripple effects. I've never seen anybody take more credit for anything.
1: For a long time in this book, I thought we were only going to get the moon landing, JFK Jr.'s death, and a handful of other big cultural events, but he followed through in the last 10 pages of this book and gave us 9-11.
0: Oh, it's been a while since the celeb has given us 9-11. <laughs>
1: I mean, I will say that this is the most connected a celebrity has been to 9-11 and all of the 9-11 stories we've read, but it was still very much about him. He tells us that this is when he was working on the West Wing, is when this great American tragedy occurred. Love it. (laughs) And he was often flying from D.C. to L.A., New York. I I guess he was just on planes to and from and around D.C. quite often. The flight that he always takes from D.C. was one of the flight paths that was the plane that went into the Pentagon. And so one week earlier, had he been on that flight one week later, he could have been on that
0: flight. (laughs) If if he had been on the flight that was part of 9-11, he would have been on the flight that was part of 9-11. Yes. And but, nobody else can say
1: that. And here's what's interesting is that it turns out the terrorists had done some practice runs um, of the flights. And one of them was a flight that Rob Lowe was on. So he actually did fly with all the 9-11 terrorists. And he was like, but you wouldn't have noticed. You, you wouldn't have seen them. They look just like us.
0: You even <laughs> have some important information. Yeah. One of the guys at Guantanamo Bay, one of the terrorists himself who survived the plane oh, crash yeah. and was in custody, wanted to depose Rob Lowe specifically. <laughs> he had his lawyer specifically ask for Rob Lowe to come to Guantanamo Bay so that the terrorists could ask Rob Lowe some questions. Yeah. That's crazy. That, I'll give him, is crazy. (laughs) You guys, there was so much more bullshit in this book. He, like, loves listing any gruesome death that ever happened in a 100-mile radius from him. He has, like, a weird obsession with violence. He gives us, like, a two-page
1: rundown of all the people from his town in Malibu that had tragic
0: life events. Very exploitive. Can I read the craziest paragraph in the whole book? For sure. He talks about growing up in Malibu. You know, he did know a lot of kind of famous people. Obviously the oh, Sheen brothers, the the Sheen brothers, the Pen brothers, they were there. Other people who go on to have famous careers. One of the guys that is high school was one of the first Dogtown guys. So his poster was on a lot of kids' rooms. He was a famous skateboarder before famous skateboarders were even a thing. And so he was so jealous of him cuz he wanted to be a famous actor and yet this guy was already living the dream being a famous skateboarder. And he goes, "But fortunes change." Within a month, I got that first break so long in coming. And within a few years, Paul had perhaps become the most notorious of all of Mile lost boys when high on PCP, he stabbed his mother to death with a butcher knife and was committed to a mental institution. Yeah, fortunes change. I mean, he is really obsessed with like any gruesome death. He talks about somebody accidentally shooting themselves and their intestines hanging out. This other kid was on his bike and he crashed into a tree. And instead of being like he was in a horrible bike accident, he describes how he was impaled by the tree and like was hanging, bleeding to death. It's yeah. like really exploitive. And I mean, as you, me, anyone we've told about is it, like, well, what does that have to do with fucking Rob Lowe? He's just like looking for any story that'll shock you. I really do believe that he doesn't know the difference between TV and reality.
1: I agree. I think all of these things are like B plot lines in his life episode.
0: It's just like what's scintillating, what's sensational, like what will keep people tuning in next week. I mean, he talks about the character of Sam Seaborn, who he plays on the West Wing. And he talks about being on the soundstage for the West Wing and how it's an exact replica of Bill Clinton's Oval Office. And so when you're in there, you feel the importance of those men and you feel how important it is to lead the country. But then he, like, slips into I statements. Like, he himself is leading the country. <laughs> and he talks about how similar he is to Sam Seaborn. And I'm just like, you're just an idiot actor, dude. You're nobody... Yeah,
1: he talks about how... He literally says Sam Seaborn is his idealized version of himself. I'm just Like, like he thinks he's Sam Seaborn.
0: I really think he thinks he's, like, deeply important and doing these things i don't think he knows the difference between tv and reality i mean he even talks about after he plays the st elmo's fire character he's like when there's a character so similar to you or that you want to be and you really sink your teeth into it you become him and he's like i think i became that guy for too many years maybe seven years and i'm like what a party frat boy you probably would have been that yeah uh-huh. if you had just gone to college like you claim you could have
1: so let's talk about what we do learn about rob Lowe, like glimpse of him that we do get that's not just like stories of the fascinating people he has encountered. And I think that the only real sense of him that we get is when he hits his rock bottom. Um, He talks a lot about his mom's mental illness and the fact that she has sort of like asked him. She's reached out for help a handful of times and he was never really able to provide it other than like buying her a house or giving money. But he was never ever like there for his family. And his rock bottom, he's basically like Cheryl had just dumped him because he cheated on her. His grandpa was dying and like his mom was falling apart and he was like, I guess that was my rock bottom. It really is weird how nothing is himself. Do you know what I mean? No. The fact that still his own rock bottom was like hinging on the people around him and the fact that like he himself doesn't have any sense of self. Yeah. Like you don't learn who he is anywhere in this book.
0: I truly... I feel like yeah, he a c- is a collection of experiences around him. Yeah. I don't know who Rablo is. I don't know what it would be like to hang out with him. I
1: think we read a handful of memoirs where like after reading 300 pages about someone, you like can sort of imagine what it would be like to have a conversation with them. And he's one of the ones where I like truly I don't know what he's like. Other I don't than know like-, what he's
0: like I don't even want to know what he's like. I think he takes himself deeply seriously. I think he's very self-important. I mean, it's not even like he got lucky, he just kept failing up. It's really unbelievable. He's really the center of his own universe, and he thinks everybody else's universe. I'm pretty sure he cheats on Cheryl. He's a too many sexual. Sure. sure. him of sexual assault. Um, I'm really disgusted by the people he idolizes. He loves violence, I know for sure. Yeah. He talks about, like, some director and how he's so old Hollywood that if somebody was rude to him on set, he would just go beat that guy up, and he's like, that's really respectable. Like, that's the way it used to be, the good old days. I don't know. He's kind of a gross empty man. I mean, I guess eventually he finds success in comedies. He's in all those Michael Myers comedies that kind of revives his.
1: Also, I think that that's what's interesting is like the best movies he's been in. I don't think that no one else could have done what he did.
0: Do you have any final things to say about Rob Lowe? What was the most upsetting story he tells, would you say? I would say
1: the most upsetting story is probably just like the list of ways people in his town have died. (laughs) Oh, he discovered Daryl Hannah. He was like the first person to think Movie star Daryl Hannah was pretty,
0: I think. He calls her his little fairy. fairy princess. His, <laughs> little, they sat together at a Thanksgiving one time, and now she's his fairy princess. My friend Daphne, when I told her we were reading this book, she just kept being like, "What will? He, when will he explain the work he's gotten done? When will he explain his terrible plastic surgery?" It doesn't come up.
1: I will say it's interesting because before this, I realized that like I just only knew Rob Lowe fondly as just like a Rob Lowe. I didn't like know anything really about him at all. And now I dislike him
0: a lot. You know what? Actually, to bring back what you were saying about who is he, I think it's funny because we love to do how did nine eleven affect our celebrities. And I will say with most people, it's like how did nine eleven affect them? Yeah, Rob Lowe did have this like weird brush with nine eleven where he said he was with that crew regularly and he was like, "See you next time, guys." And he's like, "Now they're all dead." He doesn't seem at all affected by it. It's just like things that have happened to him and there's no response, there's no emotional vulnerability. Like it's very interesting that someone who is so self-important about acting
1: doesn't have an emotional response to real like I mean, tragedies sure. in his life. So my dad, I texted him about this book because me and my brother have had a running have had a running joke that Rob Lowe is my dad's favorite actor and we didn't really know anything about Rob Lowe when we continued to gaslight my dad into thinking that he loves Rob Lowe. And we bought him this book, and I texted my dad when we were reading it to see if he'd read it. And I told him that I hated it, and he said, "I think it's like a book for men." And I do agree that the way he like brags about conquests, the way he just like riffs these stupid fucking stories, like I think it's like a the bloody a guy, bore. a guy impressing other guys. Yeah, and it made me realize because he also talks about how funny he is with his friends very regularly throughout the book. He's like me and my friends always joking, always ripping each other. None of the new jokes ones. are funny. None I never of them laugh are funny. Ones.
0: And I, I do would love think, to give him a highlighter and say, "Here's your book. Highlight what you think is funny." Yes, I would love to I know. I couldn't even point to it.
1: But here's a theory that I came up with reading this book: a guy's guy, which I think Rob Lowe is very much a guy's guy, and I think a guy's guy is the kind of guy who is only funny when he's surrounded by people who have the exact same thought process as him. So, like people who have his same like sexist, self-important bullshit brain are probably like, yes for sure. Love this guy. And he, and they're the people that he surrounded himself with. Like he doesn't really have female friends besides Jodie Foster, who is like kind of his friend, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, like Cheryl, his wife is like the first female friend he ever really had. And he was like, wow, the fact that I can talk to a woman and also think she's hot, like I got to marry her. And I think that it's because like, he only hung out with people who were exactly like him because they hyped him up. And I think if he had been around anyone who had, who thought differently than him, they would have been like, what you're saying is fucking stupid.
0: All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much. Tune into the Patreon as always. We've got bonus
1: content there. We're doing Judy Greer, which I have not started reading yet, but honestly suspect will be the exact opposite. Well, I'm excited. I'll see you guys next time. Bye.